The second reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. This is John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last Sunday, Ian kicked off our series we're calling Testify, Stories of Faith. He unpacked for us the spiritual practice of testimony, a practice that Presbyterians aren't as familiar with as our other denominations. May I get a witness? (laughs) So I'm first up to bat. I get to share my testimony with you, and in the coming weeks, other staff members will share theirs. To give one's testimony might sound rather straightforward, That is, you just have to tell your faith story, but it's not easy. It's a pretty vulnerable exercise. And yet, we shouldn't overthink it. Testimony is not a theological treatise or a doctrinal defense. Testimony means noticing and telling the story of one's own experience with God of God, and then inviting others to tell their story of God in their lives. Testimony is not intended to proselytize converts. Its intention is to witness, like a witness in a jury, to tell what is true about how we've experienced God's grace. Each of our faith stories fit into the larger narrative of God's reconciling love for the world. Our unique stories are counted among the cloud of witnesses down through the ages. What's comforting is that our imperfect, messy lives become the message of the gospel in the world. So this morning I humbly offer some of my story, 
hoping that a few of you might see God's grace in your life by hearing about God's grace in my less than perfect life. Well, where to begin? How about the beginning? I was born into a working class family. My parents believed in the dignity of hard work. My parents strived to give my brother and me what we needed to thrive in this life. Like so many working class families, they wanted their children to have greater economic security than they ever had. My dad only completed the 10th grade and my mom the 8th. They were insistent that my brother and I go to college. They knew it was the only way to get ahead and to shift out of the socioeconomic class that we were in. My parents each faced their own challenges. My dad was born into a pretty poor family and quite dysfunctional. He'd been married twice before my mom and five times in total before he died. You can gasp, five times. In fact, in the past three years, I've met two half-siblings I didn't even know I had. Two half-siblings I didn't know I had. And you can ask me about that later. My dad worked as a sheet metal man on the first Boeing 747 and the supersonic airliner, the SST, in the 60s. For nearly all my childhood, we lived in Ponderosa Estates, trailer park, about 50 miles southeast of Seattle. Now, my mom was raised on the plains of Saskatchewan, Canada, and immigrated to the United States when she married my dad. She was a farm girl, Thus, I was given the name Clover. She was the youngest of 13 kids. My mom struggled with mental illness her whole life. And for any of you who have a family member who faces mental illness, you know how impactful it is on the whole family. My mother was raised Ukrainian Catholic But after she married a divorced man, she no longer practiced her Catholicism. And although disillusioned by her childhood religion, she still felt it absolutely necessary that her children would be baptized. And it wasn't until I myself was an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church that my mom casually mentioned that my infant baptism was in a Presbyterian church. And so I like to think that John Calvin would call that predestination or providence, I guess, at least. My family didn't go to church, occasionally on Christmas Eve. But I was a very spiritual child. I like to say I was born with faith genes and a natural curiosity for things of the spirit. My faith seemed to be just knit into my fibers God was present in my life. I was sure of it. But I needed to know more. So the summer I was eight and a half, 
I was invited by a couple of neighbor boys, in fact, Rocky and Nathan, who lived a few trailers down from ours. And they invited me to a vacation Bible school at a little church nearby. The church was a Pentecostal, full gospel, Bible-believing church. I suppose they were fundamentalists, although at eight years old, I know, had no idea what that meant. And in the 1970s, I think fundamentalism was something different than it means today, than it is today, especially for Pentecostals. So I went to vacation Bible school alone because Rocky and Nathan were no-shows. God's providence. And I went each of the five days, and on the last day, the last evening, the woman who was the teacher, the leader, told the story of Jesus using a flannel graph, a flannel board. Some of you might remember that. And she told the story of Jesus, and she lovingly told us that each of us was a beloved child of God, just as Jesus was told He was God's beloved. And then she gave us the opportunity to come down to the altar to receive Jesus into our young hearts and to commit to follow him. Now, I don't remember the teacher being emotional or pressuring or sparking any fear in us. I do recollect feeling like the story of Jesus was the story I'd been waiting for for eight and a half years. I was finally given the face and a name for the God I felt I already knew. So I went down to the altar. That little church believed children were capable of understanding faith for themselves. They loved us, and we felt it. My parents didn't take me to church. They thought I was very odd. They would send me with a quarter. My dad left on the counter each week, so I would have something to put in the offering plate. The church, given that it was Pentecostal, was very joy-filled. And it gave me an alternative, joy-filled reality to the pretty grim reality I had at home. For our children's Sunday school program, Miss Williams, a grandmotherly woman, would take out her large leather Bible, her King James Bible, and she would unzip the cover. And she would set it in front of her, and all of us kids sat around the table with our Bibles open, King James, they had given them to us. And she would have us take turns reading the verses, the Bible. And there were no crafts, no leaflets, no learning centers that I remember. We just read the Bible together. And Miss Williams would stop occasionally and give us her interpretation of the text, and then she would ask us ours. She had such respect for our capability. My Sunday school attendance, because I was an odd child, was perfect. And that first year, I earned a free week to church camp. And I attended that same 
Pentecostal church camp until I graduated from high school. Unlike Ian Cummins' church camp experience, my intention was to know Jesus. Now, other children around me couldn't wait to leave church after church school, but I didn't want to leave. So I stayed, and I sat usually in one of the front rows, the front pews, and on the aisle, and I listened to the older, kind preacher talk about the gospel of grace, not the gospel of fire insurance. One morning, I remember so clearly, I was listening to him, and I thought, it hit me, I want to do what he's doing. I want to preach. I was only nine, and it didn't occur to me that I had never seen a woman up in front before, because women weren't in leadership positions, unlike we are today. I view those moments in our lives like breadcrumbs dropped by the Holy Spirit to show us our path. And I attended that little church through middle school until they ran out of families and children, and it became a little weird for me to keep going by myself. Then I eventually found my way to another church. Before my senior year, my senior year in high school at a church picnic, um, I was invited to be baptized yet again. And so I was baptized in a lake by my youth pastor. And I view both of my baptisms, the Presbyterian sprinkle and the full water dunk, as more breadcrumbs from the Holy Spirit moving me along toward God. It was finally at an evangelical Christian college. I was given space and encouraged to ask questions about Christianity, to take seriously the intellectual enterprise of faith development. Faith-seeking understanding was their motto. My professors in religious studies encouraged me to go to seminary and to seek ordination. Of course, there were plenty of others who were not as supportive and who were blatantly um, opposed to my wanting to go to seminary. I was standing in a lunch line one day, and I didn't know this young woman, but she asked me, what are you going to do with your um, religious studies major after you graduate? And I said, oh, I want to go to seminary and uh, become a minister. And she snapped very quickly, What are you trying to prove? And it was in that moment, really, in that moment, I felt the most clear about my call to ministry. You know that line in Genesis where the young Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I know that's a lot to put on that young woman, but that's what I felt. (laughs) Because it's often in the tension, in the conflict, that we see life clearly. So the obstacle to ordination at that point for me was that I was still in a tradition that didn't ordain women. And I was uncertain about what direction to go. Should I be Methodist? They had bishops and 
they told you where to serve, and I knew that wouldn't work for my personality. Episcopalian, maybe a little high church. I met a female Presbyterian minister my senior year, and I decided that if they'd take her, they'd take me. So I signed on to be PCUSA. I had no, no idea about the theology or polity, but sounded good. Again, Providence. So three weeks before college graduation, I also met a cute guy at a party who asked me what I was planning to do after graduation. And I took a deep breath and I told him I was going to seminary and I wanted to be a minister. And he said, cool, you need to meet my female priest. I married that guy. Three years later, we went off to a Presbyterian seminary and together, and Tim followed his call to the academic life. And in 1992, I was ordained to ministry of word and sacrament. And there was something powerful about putting on that robe and wearing a stole and doing the benediction. It was a culmination of a long journey and the start of a wild adventure, because ministry is never boring. So what I, what I want to testify on this day is that I learned a great deal from my upbringing. I learned a great deal from the Pentecostals. I left that church and that tradition, but I brought some of it with me. And I value the foundation of faith they gave me. It's taken a while, but I do. And I assimilated that tradition into my now progressive Presbyterian theology. I continue to feel indebted to them in three particular ways. One, they hold a high view of Scripture. Reading the text for oneself is essential to their understanding of a deepening faith. And it is mine too. Two, they believe that an experiential, heart-focused relationship with God is essential to one's faith. And I do too. Three, central to the theology of Pentecostalism is the importance of the spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. That means I have taken their theology of the spiritual gifts and have integrated it into my conviction that each and every one of us, each and every person, has been gifted and equipped and called to serve God in the world in God's reconciling work of love and with joy. In liberal circles, we call it lay leadership development. There's so much more I'd like to share with you. The mountains and the valleys God has carried me through. Especially, I'd love to tell you about the great cloud of witnesses in my life, the friends, teachers, mentors, colleagues, authors, and countless others who have had 
such an impact on me and have been guideposts along my path toward God. What I want to be sure you hear in my testimony is my assurance, my conviction that with God, nothing is ever wasted in our lives. From my vantage point in my own life and in nearly 30 years of ministry and hearing other people's stories, God is a redeemer. The bad cards we've been dealt, the mistakes we've made, and even our losses can be transformed into gifts. God's call on us can be disruptive and difficult, and it does not come with a warranty for protection from suffering. But like Paul, who from his own experience of suffering testified to grace, I too trust we've been given a promise. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. May I get a witness? <laughs>